0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 199. It's titled, What Kind of Money Is It? We usually think of money as just money. Maybe it's cash or money in the bank. In this episode, we're going to see that money is different depending on who created it, how you transfer it, how universal is it. But first, I want to share the story of the Knickerbocker Trust Company. They had a headquarters at 34th Street. In 5th Avenue in New York City. And they were well regarded. They were the second biggest, largest trust company in the U.S. in 1907. They moved into their headquarters on the corner of 5th and 34th. It was built like a fortress. Four Corinthian columns stood in front. Inside the building, the walls were made of white Norwegian marble, a mahogany with bronze detailing, the doors to go into the institution were made of bronze. Yet despite the grandeur, customers lined up outside Knickerbocker Trust Company's bronze doors on October 22nd, 1907, demanding their deposits. There were rumors that the trust company was going to fail. The trust company gave out $8 million that day and had to close two and a half hours early. And they didn't reopen until March 1908 after a cash infusion. What set off this run on Knickerbocker Trust? Well, there's a history by Bonnie Caviosi called The Panic of 1907, a human-caused crisis or a thunderstorm. She writes that the Bank of Commerce had announced on Monday, October 14, 1907, that it would stop clearing Knickerbocker Trust's checks. After the revelation that the Knickerbocker Trust president, Charles T. Barney, had been associated with two prominent but unsavory Wall Street bankers, Charles M. Morse and F. Augustus Hines, in various financial schemes. Their latest was to try to corner the stock in United Copper and corner the, the copper market, essentially grab control so they could make excessive profits. But they lost a ton of money on that trade, and it started to impact various banks. Other national banks refused to cash Knickerbocker's trust checks for fear that the trust company, would not be able to honor those checks for payments. When that word spread, the customers showed up demanding their deposits. Now, at this time, trust companies differed from state-chartered institutions. Most banks, through most of the 19th century, were state-chartered. In fact, in 1860, there was almost 8,000 different currencies because each state-chartered bank issued their own money. But by, time, by the time 1907 rolled around, the, there were national banks, mostly in New York City, that issued essentially national currency. It wasn't the U.S. dollars. They each sort of had their own currency, but it was considered national, so a little more stable than all the, the little state bank Currencies, some which were called Wildcat banks. But trust companies differed. They, they collected deposits, but they didn't, they were not as involved in the central payment system. In other words, the, the national banks cleared a lot of checks. And as a result, they held about 25% of their deposits in cash to essentially to pay depositors if they showed up and wanted to collect funds but not the trust companies. They only kept about 5% of their deposits in cash. And here's the, the really interesting thing, which is a lot like the financial crisis in 2008. These trust companies were key liquidity providers to Wall Street. They provided intraday, uncollateralized loans, which means they weren't backed by anything, to New York Stock Exchange brokers. And those brokers use those loans to purchase securities for themselves and for their clients. And then later, at the end of the day, they would use those securities as collateral for a call loan, an overnight loan that they would get from one of the national banks. But during the day, they relied on credit from the trust companies. The trust companies were integral to the the operations Uh, of New York, stock exchange, of Wall Street. And so when there started to be a run on Knickerbocker Trust Company, then it spread to the other trust companies. There was an absolute panic, which influence started to cut off the liquidity to the New York Stock Exchange. So stocks plummeted. And then it spread to the actual economy. This is just like in 2008, where the shadow banks, the hedge funds, and other non-banking institutions were lending to the, the the Wall Street banks, the Bear Stearns, the Lehman Brothers, on a daily basis, this daily liquidity. And when that, that liquidity dried up, ultimately, some of those Wall Street institutions failed. The exact same thing was happening here. And there was a spike in the call money rate, because suddenly nobody, the different institutions didn't know who to trust, which brokerage firm to trust. The interest rate on these call notes went from 9.5% to 70%, in and then over 100% in just two days. Absolute panic. It wasn't until J.P. Morgan, the J.P. Morgan, not the bank, but the man started collecting, soliciting large financial institutions, industrial companies to to provide some liquidity to the Wall Street brokerages. Meanwhile, there was panic. Customers were lining up to collect deposits from the, the trust companies and from the national banks. And it wasn't until later that year in December 1907, that the national banks essentially said, no, we're not going to redeem our deposits for cash. They put in some other liquidity provisions, but that's what stemmed the panic, but not before it impacted the real economy. Commodity prices fell over 21%. The dollar volume of bankruptcies spiked 47%. Industrial output fell 17% in 1908. Gross national product, the measure of that, that output, the measure of the economy, goods and services, fell 12%. And the unemployment rate rose from 28 to 8%. It was an absolute disaster spawned by panics with banks. Customers demanding deposit, wanting that, and the liquidity drying up. And it happened a lot in the 19th century. There was a panic in 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893, 1901, and the one we just talked about in 1907. There was not a lender of last resort. There were national banks, but there was not a central bank that could provide liquidity in times of crisis. There was not a central bank that issued currency. The currency was, belonged to the different national banks. It was this panic, this economic crisis in 1907 that led to the establishment of the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, in 1913. And it began issuing its own currency, Federal Reserve notes, the U.S. dollar, in 1914. If you go to Wikipedia and look at a search for Federal Reserve note, you'll have an image of a $10 bill issued in 1914. It looks fairly similar to the $10 bill today. It's green, but it has some different words on the back. It says, this note is receivable by all national and member banks and Federal Reserve banks and for all taxes Customs, and other public dues. It is redeemable in gold, on demand at the Treasury Department of the United States in the city of District Columbia, Washington, or in gold or lawful money at any Federal Reserve Bank. When the Federal Reserve Act was passed, the law required the Federal Reserve to hold 40% of the value of the currency it issued In gold. So this Federal Reserve note is a liability of the Federal Reserve. It still is. It's a liability. It might be our asset. We might own cash. But that note is a liability of the Federal Reserve. And in 1914, 40% of their assets that backed that currency or 40% of the currency needed to be gold assets held by the federal reserve and that worked really well up until the great depression of 1933 when the when essentially households and businesses started hoarding gold and the federal reserve was getting to where it didn't have enough gold in its vault to support the amount of currency, dollar bills and coins outstanding. And it was in 1933 that President Roosevelt declared a a bank holiday. And essentially, it was at that point that for a period that you could no longer redeem those dollars those Federal Reserve notes for gold. And we could spend a whole episode, and we will at some point, talking about that whole situation uh, of the, the early 1930s, where a, as households, you could no longer, you were required to turn in and sell your gold to the U.S. government. But after 1933, the Federal Reserve notes were no longer backed by gold. And in 1971, federal other non-U.S. central banks could no longer exchange U.S. currency for gold. And it was at that point that we went on a complete fiat currency, not backed by anything. It was also in 1933 that the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, was established, essentially to protect depositors in case of bank failures. Thousands of banks failed in the 1920s and early 1930s. And and the idea was having a central bank to stem, sort of be a lender of last resort, but also have deposit insurance to to stem some of the, the bank panics where our depositors would show up wanting money. We're hoarding their money because we're afraid to put it in the bank. But we're going to see in this episode that your bank deposits are not money in the sense that holding currency is money. We want to look at some characteristics of money and see that cash, bank deposits cryptocurrency, gold, PayPal. They're all different types of money. But before we do that, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. There are two papers by the Bank of International Settlements that I'll link to in the show notes of this episode. And you also would have gotten those links if you sign up for my free weekly insider's guide where I'll send you show notes. And um, some of the best writing, I do an essay. I do each week sometime on that week's topics, sometimes expanding on it or on something else. You can always sign up for that at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com, or as a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. The one paper was titled Central Bank Cryptocurrencies, and it is by Morton, Linneman Beck, and Rodney Garrett. The other was a staff report on central bank digital currencies. And was fascinating about them is they both had a taxonomy of money different characteristics of money, and they organized it in a way I I hadn't really considered. Typically, we thought of money as, as a store of value, a unit of an account, something that facilitates transactions. But they went beyond that. In this taxonomy of money, they listed out seven characteristics. One is issuer. Who issued it? The central bank or another entity? The form, is it electronic, i.e. digital, or is it physical? The accessibility, can everybody get access to it? Is it universal or is it limited? What about the transfer mechanism? Is it centralized in terms of transferring it from one entity to another, or is it decentralized? Is it available 24-7? Is it interest-bearing? Do you earn interest on this form of money? And do you have anonymity? Or do people know that you have it and you sent it? And when we look at that, we realize different types of money have different characteristics. Let's take cash, for example. Federal Reserve notes, U.S. dollars. They're issued by the central bank, the Federal Reserve, or other countries' central banks issue their currency. So it's issued by them. It is physical. You hold it in your hand. It's universal. Everybody can have it. In fact, many central banks hold Federal Reserve notes as reserves backing their currency. Sixty percent of foreign currency reserves by central banks, non-U.S. central banks, are held in U.S. denominated assets. About half is treasury bills. Others would be actual Federal Reserve notes. So it's universal. It has a decentralized transfer mechanism. You just pay somebody. So you don't have to send your cash to actual dollars through a particular entity. And as a result, it's available 24-7, but you don't earn interest on it. This cash, these Federal Reserve notes, is a form of money. It's about $1.6 trillion outstanding. And it's backed, not by gold. Remember, they used to be backed by gold. Forty percent of the currency outstanding needed to be backed by gold when the Federal Reserve was established. Now it's mostly backed by U.S. Treasury bills. Government debt, that's what backs the... backs. And when I say back... Not formally, but if we look at the Federal Reserve balance sheet, the Federal Reserve notes $1.6 trillion worth are a liability of the Federal Reserve. Much of their assets are our treasury bonds and bills. So that's one type cash. What about a bank deposit? Bank deposits aren't issued by the Federal Reserve. They're issued by commercial banks. And that money, those deposits are often created when a bank makes a loan. You sign a loan document and the asset on the balance sheet of the bank that's put there is a loan receivable, just an accounting entry. And a deposit, the liability of the bank is then made to offset that asset they don't go find the money, the money is created out of thin air. And there's $9.2 trillion of these commercial bank deposits. This is private money. This is not. This is a liability of whatever bank you put your money in. It's definitely digital. It's universal, so these commercial bank deposits are everywhere. It is centrally transferred and cleared, so there's you can wire the money so through a central clearing network. The the, the checks are are also cleared, and so but it's not anonymous by any means. It generally is interest bearing, so you can earn some interest on your deposits, but it isn't available twenty four seven. You can go to an ATM and access some of it through an ATM, but converting it to To currency, so you convert it to a different denomination to Federal Reserve notes. But you can't wire the money in the middle of the night. You can't access large sums in the middle of the night. Often there's a delay to send those funds. So it's very different than cash, different characteristics. And those differ from central bank reserves. Central bank reserves are issued by central banks but they're limited. The only entity that have access to these reserves that central banks create is commercial banks. You can't get access to reserves of the central bank. You, we can only get access to these federal reserve notes. And so when they're talking about potentially doing central bank digital currency, they're talking about the feasibility of households. You and I having access To these reserves. The US Federal Reserve has $2.2 trillion of reserves. They're definitely digital. You transfer them centrally. They're not anonymous. They're interest bearing. The Federal Reserve pays interest on the reserves held by central banks or held by commercial banks, but they're limited. Not everybody accesses them. Most of these reserves were created through the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing program, where they bought treasury bonds from banks that were members of the Federal Reserve, and they swapped out those assets that the banks had, those treasury bonds that the banks held, and they swapped them for reserves. So now the the, the banks had more reserves at the, the central bank. And the Federal Reserve created that money out of thin air. So the liability was the Federal Reserve. Basically, the reserves was the liability of the bank, and it offset the, the treasury bills that were now the asset of the Federal Reserve. So, but it's a very, very different type of money than, than commercial deposits. Different characteristics. What about gold? Gold is physical, who creates it? who issues with it? nobody it's mine, so you just buy it. It's universal it's everywhere. seven and a half trillion dollars worth of gold is mined that has been all time history of gold about seven and a half trillion dollar outstanding it's anonymous you can sell gold to somebody else, give it to somebody else peer to peer so decentralized transfer and and that's That's a characteristic. It's a just different type. Cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Who issues Bitcoin? Nobody. It's issued through the mining process, the Bitcoin protocol. It's digital. It's universal. It's decentralized. It's peer-to-peer in terms of transferring from one to the other. For now, it's anonymous. Although, oftentimes, if you're trying to buy large sums... To a broker like Coinbase, you have to verify your identity. But once you have it, if you, you move it to a, a crypto wallet, you can transfer it and there's some anonymity there. It's available 24-7. There's 17 million Bitcoins outstanding, about $118 billion worth. Down from $320 billion in mid-December 2017. Completely different type of currency, but unique characteristics. Bitcoin is the one digital currency that's anonymous, that's peer-to-peer, 24-7 availability. So it differs from bank deposits, which are not anonymous, definitely digital, but not available 24-7. And what happened during the panic of 1907 the banks refused to redeem deposits it happened again in 1933 when there was a bank holiday for a period you cannot get access to your bank deposits yes we have the FDIC yes we have the Federal Reserve to act as a lender of last resort but we have to recognize that Bank deposits are different than holding cash, which are Federal Reserve notes, which is different than owning something physical like gold or something digital like Bitcoin. I believe, as investors, we should have diversification of our money. This is apart from being diversified in terms of our assets, income-earning assets that we buy with money or, or swap with money just in terms of day-to-day liquidity. I have bank deposits, my family, we have cryptocurrency, we own physical gold coins, and we have some Federal Reserve notes just in case. Not predicting any, everything, anything, not likely to have a crisis, But if there's a disruption and an inability, for whatever reason, to access your deposits at your bank, it's helpful to have a backup plan. Now, what's missing from the examples we gave? The government. The U.S. government doesn't issue currency. There is no U.S. note a bill that is demand or basically backed by the U.S. government. They're backed by the Federal Reserve. And as a result, the U.S. government, while the U.S. Treasury Secretary signs dollar bills to liability of this independent entity, the Federal Reserve. Now, there's a, a mutually beneficial relationship between the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government. First off, the Federal Reserve is authorized by an act of Congress. So Congress oversees the Federal Reserve, even though it's a quasi-independent agency. The Federal Reserve's mandate is to foster economic conditions that achieve stable prices and maximum sustainable employment. And so it's in the Federal Reserve's interest to make sure the dollar as Federal Reserve notes, and assets denominated accounted for in dollars, that it's stable, that the U.S. government in terms of its spending doesn't get profligate and overspend leading to capacity constraints that lead to inflation. So much of what the Federal Reserve does is try to control the amount of bank lending money creation that is taking place so that we don't have inflation. And again, it's in the interest of the Federal Reserve to make sure that the U.S. government, its debt is sustainable and that interest rates stay reasonable. Why? Because its major asset backing those Federal Reserve notes are Treasury bills. And so there's this mutually beneficial relationship that the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government have. Now, I'm not going to talk about the national debt today because I have a special episode, hopefully episode 200. It's going to be the Great National Debt Debate. And I'm going to debate or have a discussion with another podcaster who's really, really worried about the national debt. And I'm not as worried about the national debt. Some would say I'm not worried at all. We're going to hold off on that for this week. But the takeaway from this week's episode is that bank panics can happen again. Not as likely as they were in the 19th century and early 20th century. But we need to protect ourselves in case there's a bank holiday and we can't get access to our bank deposits. This form of digital money that's issued Created by commercial banks, private entities, we need to diversify our money holdings. Own some Federal Reserve notes that you store in a safe deposit box, in a safe like that. Own, I own some cryptocurrency, some, some Bitcoin that I hold as a money diversifier. Not It's a speculation for sure because it's not denominated in U.S. dollars. But it has some characteristics uh, of money that's unique. I own some gold coins for the same reason. So have some of that diversification in terms of your money. That's episode 199. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.